0: For the Lord God, said the prophet Amos, does nothing unless he has revealed his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear the Lord God has spoken, who will not prophecy. Well, what more can I say to that? I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. (music) Season 6, Interlude, A Modern Prophecy Challenge And now for something completely different. It's come to my attention recently that many listeners to The Jewish Story are unaware that I also indulge in biblical fantasy. And I don't just mean that on a personal perspective. I am the co-author of the Age of Prophecy series, In the Works, two books written, several more along the way. It's biblical fantasy. If you want, by the way, to taste my perspective on what imagination might look like when it's applied to spiritual practice, you can check out TheAgeOfProphecy.com. You can download one of the books. But what I want to do now is invite you to take the Prophecy Challenge. Go to that website, TheAgeOfProphecy.com, and you scroll down, you'll see the seven-day self-fulfilling prophecy challenge. It's an opportunity to engage some of the wisdom of the prophets in a way in which is actually practically applicable. A little bit of transformative Torah to aid your personal growth. And in order to make that even more appealing, I've invited my co-author to join me with an interview. So here's some thoughts on The Age of Prophecy with Dave Mason. So I'm sitting here with friend, co-author, Chevruta, and fellow rabbi, Dave Mason, and I'm super excited to have a conversation here in your beautiful home. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, Mike, thanks for coming by.
0: I mean, truth be told, people should know it's not an uncommon sort of occurrence for us to be together on a Monday morning, but it isn't actually so often that we get a chance to sit down and really try to put our thoughts in a recorded form. I almost said pen to paper, but this is, of course, a digital medium. And so what I would like to do is start off with a little bit of the back story, because you know, when I look at the Age of Prophecy Project, I know a lot about it. In fact with the exception of your holy wife, I probably know more about the Ark of Formation than anyone but yourself. But I get the question all the time when people say to me, hey, there's this thing I heard, it's like the biblical Harry Potter. How did that come about? So tell me a little bit, for you, how did the Age of Prophecy begin? So it began, wow, let's see,
1: 14 years ago now as oh, we're, we're telling old. this story. Yeah, oh, we're, we're, we're getting old, I know.
0: Right. We're we'll That's the last comment we'll make on that.
1: And at the time... You and I had started, we were part of starting this new learning program, Selam Yaakov, and it was the second year, and we were learning about prophecy. We had this process, we were learning about the Navim Rishonim, the early prophets, and we were learning these stories, and I well, thought these stories were incredible. And We also had a class going on, and this rabbi was teaching us kind of about the inner workings of prophecy, and I was so blown away by it, because I've been an Orthodox Jew for a long time. i would learned a lot of Torah, but yet there's this incredible magical world here, the world of the prophets, and I'd never learned anything about that. We'd learned so much about laws. Why weren't we learning these incredible stories and this incredible understanding of the world and nature that was completely different? Why weren't we getting this? Why wasn't this like
0: day one? So first step was uh, kind of an exposure. Meaning there's, there's a very standard approach to religious education, which even though neither you nor I were born in the religious world, nonetheless, especially as those not born in the religious world, there's a certain fast tracking. Here's the stuff you need to know in order to fit the mold. And at Sulem Yaakov, it was a unique environment. And so there was an exposure to what I might call the richness of what it means to be part of an ancient people. There really is. And I was so touched by
1: that. And at the same time, I was finishing Harry Potter 7 for the third time.
0: <laughs> and the, just I'm giving a geek warning now that everyone should know. Raise your hand if you're a geek. You can't see us, but we're both raising them. Okay, thank you.
1: So here I am reading Harry Potter 7 for the third time and learning all of these things about prophecy. And suddenly this comes together in my mind. I, I had this thought. If there was to be a real-life Hogwarts people would literally break down the doors to get in and learn what they had to teach Well, the,
0: the proof is that they've basically created a mock in people like join the houses and stuff i mean <laughs> you were way ahead of your time in that thinking
1: exactly and yet here we are we had this whole incredible magical realm in our own past and our own tradition in these books that are just sitting on these shelves kind of uncracked and for all these years i hadn't even delved into it and i said This is incredible. People don't even know what we have in our own tradition. And I said, you know, somebody needs to write a Harry Potter type book set in this biblical world of the prophets and show the magic of the prophets and this whole deeper mystical worldview that they were part of. And being a business person, my first thought was, okay, who can I hire to accomplish this? I thought about it. I thought about different writers I knew. I thought about how I could put the project together and get the right person in charge in order to be taking this idea of mine and running with it.
0: Project management.
1: Project management. Yeah, that was Which you're good at, more of my forte. That was exactly. It was much more of my forte than writing.
0: We'll get to that later.
1: And at a certain point I'm like, if I want to see this happen, I just have to figure it out. I just have to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and just start writing. And I started writing this book and didn't tell anybody about it. I didn't even tell my wife about it for quite a while. And I just started playing around and seeing what would come. And we'd be sitting in Suleyme and I'd ask the most random questions to people when I needed to know something. I remember one day asking, I think, David Swidler a question about Ugaritic mythology, which is just a very, very
0: I, I do want to say random. there was probably never a better environment in Jerusalem where one could ask, almost anything within the realm of propriety and get a legitimate answer, or at least something amusing.
1: Absolutely. And I, I got like a straight answer to my question and nobody ever said, huh, Dave, why do you want to know that?
0: <laughs> I mean, I have to say now that, that once you dragged me into the project, it took me, what, two years, to even ask why it was you were interested in learning the Rambam's perspective on prophecy, or why it was these particular chapters in, in the, in the, in the you know, works of the prophets were a focus, or why... At in, in a certain point, it just never connected for me. So let's not be too surprised.
1: <laughs> so here I am writing this book, and eventually I told my wife about this. We were actually having dinner in Ain Karim, and we started walking home looking to, to take... To catch a bus and the bus didn't come and we just started walking and i remember sharing this with my wife and we just decided to walk the entire distance back home It was like an hour and a half two hour walk and i just yeah, like nice explained walk. what was going on with this book and she was just like in complete shock the next person i told about it was actually you so we'll get there in a second
0: but okay. i want to make sure that because that I'm, I'm interested in the process here even though i've been part of it since almost the beginning first is the the discovery And I think that's very important that that oftentimes we engage things in life at their surface and we assume that what you see is what you get. But particularly as children of an ancient tradition, which I do dare say that we are, right, that it's always worth it to dig. And when you get that first exposure to recognize there's a richness often to the things we have that even though we have them, we don't know. But the second and to me even more important element was a determination to do something about it. Because as we'll speak about later, uh, an element which has always drawn me to this Age of Prophecy project is the perspective of transformative Torah. That learning is, is an enormously beautiful intellectual and emotional exercise, but until it becomes transformative, until we're able to take it into action and make it part of our lives, it will always lack the power it might otherwise wield. And so therefore, the fact that you were excited and realized that you need to do something about it, and last but not least, it's a response to something relevant in the world. You looked around, businessman that you are, and said, Hey, there are twelve-year-olds, they used to say reading is dead, right? Now there are twelve-year-olds lining up around the block to wait in line, you know, to read the next or buy the next thousand-page novel. Obviously, there's a need. And if and if you're going to have a product that moves the world, you've got to meet the need. Okay, so then then you revealed this secret to me? And one of the questions I get from people all the time, and I've answered it for myself, I'm kind of curious, actually, to hear the answer from you, is that we we were Chavrutot before we began to write together. I mean, we were learning Torah in the classic sense of a head-to-head, you know, there's a phrase that our sages use, "Oh chavruta, O Metuta, right? Either you have a study partner or you're dead, meaning that this can't be done alone. And also that there's an aspect of life that comes out through, let's say, constructive conflict. Um, you know, now when that text already exists, if we're learning the Gemara or, or, or some story in the Prophets. So we can clash over meaning, but the text exists between us. But here, you and I have been cheruta; We've been study partners, at, as it were, in creating a text together in order to understand it and further development. How has it been for you to write a, a fictional story with a partner? It's a question I get all the time. And by the way, don't hold back.
1: So it's a question I get all the, all the time because I've written four novels now. All of them with partners, two with you and two with my wife, Hannah. And I love the process. I really like having a second person there with me in the process. I've always kind of felt my strongest skill as a writer is that I'm a problem solver, mm-hmm. that I like finding when I get stuck in a corner and don't really know what to do from here. That's usually when the most creative scenes, the most creative solutions come
0: about. <laughs> I got a memory I want to share with you. Okay. You're, you're going to remember. We were sitting in the Golan when you guys had moved up to the Golan. Wow, we have been at this for quite some time, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Um, so we're, we're sitting in a, in a Beit Midrash in a small shul in, um, in Yonatan, and we had a problem with our narrative. At a certain point, you got this glow on your face. And you said, I think we have to kill Shimon. <laughs> you remember that experience, right? Shimon was a character in the novel. If you haven't read The land of the Lamp of Darkness, hit pause, go buy the book, and read it, and then come back and finish. But, Spoiler alert, Shimon dies. Yeah, I guess at this point I might have ruined part of the story for you, but it's not... Well, actually, it's fairly crucial. Oops. Anyway, moving on. So but th- that was a powerful experience for me in what you're speaking about as a, a problem solver is that I often felt like um, we're just charging ahead into... The unknown. One of the, things that, one of the things I read by a writer that moved me the most is that we're both Tolkien fans. In fact, people should know that there's an ongoing Haruta argument here over whether the book should be more like Tolkien or more like Harry Potter. I believe in the end that I won, but that, that practically speaking, that you've driven the bus. That ideally, it should be like Tolkien, but since nobody reads books like that so much anymore, we're going to go for the Harry Potter piece.
1: I am so not re-engaging in this argument on this podcast.
0: <laughs> I was trying to bait you. Anyway, one of my favorite memories is he says that there's a moment at which when uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring in the early parts of the book where, where the hobbits get to the, to the inn in Bree and they meet Strider, who's going to be, if you know the story, like so much, the king, et cetera, that if it's a spoiler, then tough luck. <laughs> um, but Tolkien writes that when the hobbits got there and met Strider, he had no more idea who he was than they did. That it was this incredible adventure. Of charging into a world has it been like
1: that for you 100% to me entering into the world of the prophets was not just a process of oh hey there are people out there I want to teach about this realm it's been a real journey of exploration and self-reflection because ultimately that's who the prophets were there were people who went off into the wilderness and they Connected with themselves and they worked on themselves and they were able to connect to the world around them and to God but it's we say that every single prophet trained to get prophecy that it's always been a process of growth and exploration and understanding and for me, it's not like I was just recording some stories that I would written about it, but people didn't know it was it was a process of learning and exploring and saying what was this realm about? What was the life? like? What did it mean to get taken from a normal world and brought into this mystical world of the prophets? What changes did people go through when they approached that? It, it raised more questions than it answered, and it led me on this whole incredible journey that I've been extremely grateful to be on.
0: So then to come back to the question that I started with, on that journey, how was it for you, and, and what did it add or, or detract to have a partner?
1: So to me, I just absolutely love this idea of like being stuck and not knowing where to go and having somebody that you're just going back and forth with and back and forth and talking it. We've had out some real arguments. Finding, <laughs> we've had some real arguments. And to me, it's just absolutely, it's, it's a great process. It's a, the way it would often work. So every single book I've ever been part of, I've done the initial drafts on, both with you and with my wife, Hannah. And I'd write them and then I'd pass them on and I'd put them aside. I like a gap of time in between drafts. And I'm not the type of writer who can write a draft and then make some a few edits and then publish. And I write draft after draft after draft after it's, draft. It's true people. And so to write a draft and then pass it on and hear reflections and hear somebody else say to me, Okay, wow, this part really worked. This part didn't hear. What do we do about that and I was and raise nice. issues? um i think for the podcast we can claim you were (laughs) and then to be going back and forth and struggling and talking things out and i feel like that's what really sparks my my creativity sitting alone with a laptop just doesn't get me there the same way in fact I, i just saw a picture from like six years ago that we were six years no sorry it was in ecuador it was like three years ago, we were working on the book, the cash machine that my wife and I were writing together Mm -hmm. and we were in Ecuador, the three of us, my wife and myself, my wife and my son, and we were going on this hike and we got lost and we were just wandering around this mountain, not sure where this path was and how we were supposed to get back to it. And we started talking about the cash machine and the fact that we didn't really know how it ended. And at the time, my, my son who was, I don't know, maybe 14 at the time, he actually came up with the, with the solution, with the ending that we needed for the book. But just the three of us going on a hike and discussing this book and the ending and where we were stuck and just talking about it for hours until we had worked out what an ending should be like. I remember that with The Key of Rain, book two of the Age of Prophecy series. Sure, I remember how too. I was really stuck with a challenge in that I felt that the scenes that are in the biblical narrative Are so powerful and we made it very plausible that our main character be there to witness all of these scenes we did a good job in constructing that but we had a bit too much of a fly-on-the-wall experience of somebody outside watching these incredible things unfold but you don't really want that you want your protagonist to be the mover the shaker you want them to be the person who's actually moving things forward For it to be his story. To be his story. And so how were we able to take that and make it his story? How were we able to get to the, the big ending culmination, having him just witness it and not really be part of it? That didn't work. But the scene was so spectacular as it was. What did we do about that? And then we realized that, wait a second. There's another scene in this book. That wasn't the culmination. There's another scene coming up. And what we came up with that day just completely shifted for me the entire narrative. Don't ruin it for people. I'm not going to ruin it like you did with the first book. Yeah, I'm sorry. just going <laughs> to. <laughs> it's okay. The, the Shimon part is only a, only a side thing. But the solution we came up with came from a place of saying there's something here that is not working. What do we need? How do we get out of this? And it was just hours of debate. That got us there.
0: So it's beautiful. There's a powerful image here, first of all, that um, working with a partner allows a, a much more profound holding of the question. Because when you're working alone, try to create a narrative, something I do all the time in the Jewish story. At a certain point, like, i got to finish this story. If I'm going to publish it, there's got to be the next step. Whereas with you working with a partner, you can just come up with the question and like, say, I don't know where this is going. And you can sort of bat it back and forth. On a deeper level, there's a classic image that the sages share um, about Moshe and Aaron, right? Who, there's never been two greater prophets, but we could put Elijah up there maybe too. Um, but, uh, but you know, they say that um, in the beginning in Egypt, even before Sinai, but when Moshe was really coming into his own as a prophet, that each of them would say, you speak, no, you speak, no, you speak, back and forth. And right? that, that, that the divine speech actually came out from between the two of them. That there's some aspect of revelation, of, of the prophetic of being able to grasp a world which is larger than us, which on some level is really what prophecy is about, right? Right. That has to come through interaction, because otherwise we're all stuck inside our own little world. So on that note, I want to pivot toward what I see to be one of the more important sort of big picture pieces of, of uh, what what you're doing, what we're doing together, which is trying to bring fantasy and imagination back into the mainstream, of religious education. You know, uh, we've had some fairly skeptical responses. One of my personal favorites was was the uh, email you got from a, a woman who loved the book, um, was uh, from the religious Orthodox Jewish community, but her husband told her she can't read it because it says that there was idolatry, right, in the, in the kingdom of Israel in the first temple times, and you told her to go read the Bible, <laughs> if you recall, right, the golden calf.
1: I, I do recall, exactly. This was actually somebody I'd given the book to before it even came out, and somebody I I knew well, and she was so disturbed to see them bowing down to the golden calf. They knew about the golden calf. The golden calf happened in the desert, and Moses came down from the mountain, and Moses destroyed the golden calf. And now you have the Israelites bowing down to the golden calf.
0: When they already have a kingdom in the land of Israel.
1: Yeah. Why were you interjecting that? That seems so inappropriate. Why did you want to go bring back that golden calf idea? We thought you were trying to teach you know, about the biblical times, why do you have to go reintroduce the golden calf and pretend the Israelites re-created re, uh, the golden calf? And exactly, I told her to go and read it, and for anybody listening, there were actually three golden calves created throughout Jewish history. The famous one lasted a mere number of hours, but there were two...
0: But it ended dramatically.
1: <laughs> yes. It's very, 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 famous, very famous scene, but there were two more created in the kingdom of Israel, so a bit of historical context. Everybody knows King David and his son was King Solomon. Really, we think of the, this incredible kingdom they had, but the kingdom didn't last be, beyond them. King Solomon's son lost the kingdom, and the United Kingdom split into ten tribes and two tribes. And the ten tribes had most of the populace and most of the power, but what they didn't have was Jerusalem. And they didn't have the temple. And so the new king of the northern kingdom says, what am I going to do? Because if I let the people go to the temple, as they're supposed to do three times a year, then everybody's going to go down there. And there's a rule that says only a king from the house of David can sit in the temple. So everyone is going to go be standing around and see one person sitting in a kingly manner. And they're going to say, that's that what a real charge. king looks like. This other guy with us, who's also broad. standing... You know, he just doesn't stack up. We should be giving our allegiance to the one who is the real king. And so he thinks to himself, okay, what do I do about this? And he kind of, I believe, goes back in the historical narrative. The golden calf, to me, was very clearly not a replacement for God. We have a lot of idolatry in Jewish history. We have the Baal. We have Asherah. They're very much part they of a different the different story. Books. The golden calf was a replacement for Moses essentially. It was a vehicle, an intermediary between the people and God. If you look at the narrative the people said about the golden calf, they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. they were still connecting the golden calf to their experience, to their understanding.
0: So th- this is actually goes to the heart of, of, of how we got into this, which is that, that people have a need for the fantastic. They have a need for the imaginative. And once upon a time, that was the orientation of what we call religion it was toward the wonder of existence right and there was a point at which you know science started to offer certainty and dispel the 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 clouds of superstition so religion wasn't going to be put second best so we had to like you know step in and and make it certain but 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 there there's there's an element of wonder i think that people are seeking
1: i'm so this is a good example of every one of the of the havruta yeah, author, if you could only see the faces things, he was
0: making at me there, I'm feeling a little hurt.
1: I'm going to go the exact opposite way on this one. Because what was God? God was something to the, the people coming out of Egypt as something they completely couldn't relate to. They didn't want to hear directly from God. They freaked out when they heard directly from God. And they say, Moses, you be our intermediary. You go back and forth between, the, between us. And when Moses didn't come down the mountain... They started freaking out. We know we've got this connection to this hugely powerful God, but we can't see this God. We can't handle hearing this God. We have no way to connect to this God. All other gods in you know in Egypt and our in our experience, they have little statues. That the statues are not the god themselves. The statues are a physical embodiment. And I feel like they wanted to come a little bit. Out of that mystical experience, they want something concrete they could relate to.
0: Listen, we can we can we can duke it out later. But I think you'll agree that either way, whether you go from from the from the finite to the infinite or the infinite to the finite, in between lies the fantastic. And and the fact is that, that there are in, there are mysteries which are impossible to grasp, which we need to make concrete in order to have a relationship to them. At the same time, we live in a world, especially today, where things have been made so concrete that it feels confining. And when we can scrape away at the surface of the rules and the structures and we discover the depth of the ancient tradition there, it's exciting. And so wh- what I really want to sort of um, is touch, touch on is the power that reintroducing the fantastic and the imaginative into spiritual practice really offers. I'll tell you a story. I remember that um, I was like science fiction, fantasy geek extraordinaire growing up. Um, like really, and as is true of all good geeks lived in the world of the books that I read. It wasn't just that I read these books. I really inhabited that world. Uh, and sometimes my parents wondered whether I was ever going to come back, but I remember very clearly in middle school, I have a clear memory that I was walking down the halls and for some reason, it, like, as we say in Hebrew, right? Like, the penny dropped. I guess you say the same thing in English, right? Um, except you can find a penny and not an Asimone anymore. Um, it, 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 and, and I realized that there weren't elves and dwarves and, and dragons and uh, and magicians waiting just around the corner. Just hiding and, and, and just, you know, like, waiting until I could finally discover them. That it wasn't going to happen. That that world of the fantastic, which gave me a sense of freedom and possibility and excitement, did not exist. It was heartbreaking. It was actually, I would go so far as to say crushing. And it took me years, years to recover. And I continued to read fantasy, but it was more than as escapism as opposed to a richness of my daily life. It was only when I began to learn Torah on a depth that I really can sort of grasp it today that that type of richness of a lived experience returned to my life. So, so um, I'm curious for you. What is it that drew you to story as a vehicle for teaching the world the Torah that, that you think matters? Because if you recall, like one of the first uh, versions of the book we wrote was like terrible. We put all the favorite Torahs in it, right? and every character would turn to the reader and just teach Torah. And, and one of our editors along the way said, that's wonderful, now take it all out. And she was a very religious woman, so we were quite shocked. Why story? What does it bring to the table?
1: Well, it's like you said. You can get lost in a story. You can get into a story, and it can just feel like I want more of this. I want. I want to know how it ends. I want to know where it's going. In fact, we were talking about the golden calf before, and I was like, I, I didn't finish my golden calf story. I didn't connect all the all, all the dots. That's because I no, got no, no. you off. We need to go. We need to go further into that. Like when I'm in a story, I don't want to go to sleep at night. Like you, I don't want to. I don't want to put it down. I don't want to get up in the morning and go where I have to go. I'm like, no, no, it's okay. I'm just going to sit here and read. I'm, I'm in the middle of this.
0: It's immersive.
1: It's so immersive. It can be so addicting. And to me, that's such a big part of it is that when you have a story, you can learn effortlessly. Mm. When you've got a really good story that pulls you in. And so actually, all of my books thus far, I'm working on my first nonfiction book actually at the moment. All the books I've published so far have all been novels that teach. Because
0: say a I, word about that outside of the age of prophecy realm.
1: Yes, because I, I realize if I can get people into a really good story, I can slip in information that they, that I think it's important for people to know without them feeling like they're they're getting a lesson drilled into them.
0: It's very biblical. It's kind of like the stories of the early prophets.
1: There you go. So, so far I've published two books and. One of them came about because I saw something working in my life that blew me away with how powerful it was. And I said, I want to teach these techniques to others. So that that led to the book, The Size of Your Dreams. It's really a book that teaches you how to create a vision and gives you the tools to manifest it in your life. And that one is set within a, a high school classroom with these four students. And this teacher who just wants to teach them that there's so much more that they're capable of then they might even realize themselves. And it goes into a lot of issues of self-identity, how you build a robust self-identity, how you dream big and how you really manifest everything you need to make those dreams happen. Mm-hmm. And that's been a book that we've seen has been hugely impactful in people's lives, especially while it's written for adults. When middle school age kids read this, we get this feedback that people say, wow, it changed my life. In fact, I, we know a lot of, Teenagers right now who have been struggling a lot. It's been a brutal couple of years. It's been a brutal couple of years. I think it's hit kids the worst. And so we've decided to actually start. That book is called "The Size of Your Dreams." We decided to start the Size of Your Dreams Foundation, and be giving away copies of this book and trying to get in the hands of of teens who might be struggling, who might need some tools to help them figure things out. They could read these stories of these four teenagers in the book and the struggles they're going through and how these tools impact them, and they can start to see, hey, well, I can do this too.
0: Amazing. We'll say a word at the end about how people can be touched with you about that.
1: Absolutely. And the other book that we wrote came from the complete opposite direction. So, as we mentioned, I've been in business for for many years, but yet poor financial choices led us to be deep in debt despite the fact that we'd been making good income. And I started to realize at a certain point that we've struggled a lot because we never got a good financial education and you know if you think back to elementary school middle school high school college I even went this far all the way through law school so many years I was being prepared to learn how to earn money how to you know have a career but not a single hour of that entire educational period was on how to manage on it on <laughs> how to make smart choices with my money how to invest it how to save it how to spend it how to grow it and I decided on that one that, you know, I've never learned as much about a topic as when I've been writing a novel on that subject. And so I said, okay, I'm going to write a money book. And people are like, but you don't know anything about money. I said, exactly. By the
0: time I, I, I finish will this book. by the book, time I'm done.
1: I will. <laughs> and I got such an incredible financial education. For two years, I just threw myself in. And I kept following each trail I was learning about until I just kept hearing the same things over and over again. They'd listen to podcast after podcast, read book after book, watch video after video. And when I'd watch something or read something, it was like, okay, I know that. I know that. I know that. And I, I finally started to feel like, okay, I was ready. And we put together that book. But again, it's not a dry money book. It's a novel. And it actually became something I thought I'd never write. It be- became a love story. Because truthfully, our financial struggles largely came about through... Through our marriage, through our relationship, and this is something we started doing. We started having young couples in our community over for for dinner right when they get married, and talk to them about money because money is, it's one of the top causes of divorce. It's one of the top causes of marital strife. And I used to think that meant lack of money, but really it means when two people are on different pages about money, they've got different beliefs around money, and we just we didn't know what we were doing. We were flailing. We were grown up. We were told money is it's not a topic, you something you should talk about. It's right. private. Sure. We were never comfortable talking about it. We never learned about it. And so when we got married and we tried to make financial decisions that would please the other and that would be smart, we were just flailing and we were doing stupid things with our, with our money. And it became a source of tension in our relationship. And it became really the two were very intermingled for us. And so the book, I think naturally became a love story. It naturally became a story about two people who were We're struggling, and the financial lessons all come through the dynamic of the relationship. So it helps people understand both, A, how to get a financial education and really learn hundreds of financial lessons, but also, B, how money can work within a relationship, how you can do it together. And we give this book to people all the time, and we say, like, the couples read this together and as you go through and you're learning these different topics and you're learning these different concepts, discuss them and decide how you want to apply them in your lives.
0: It's really beautiful and, and I think the sort of overarching message is that um, a story creates the context for, for exploration. It's not just, um, here, take this information in and put it to use. It poses a context for asking, who are you? Who do you want to be? And, and as you said, there's an effortless. Lit- is that a word effortlessness there's there's an ease of access that comes because a story engages you it draws you in and um i think that more than anything else to me this is one of the crucial contributions that the imagination and the fantastic can make to religious education because ultimately what is a relationship to torah a relationship to god meant to be other than an all-encompassing world in which you live so i want to just make yeah, yeah, got something you want to add? Yeah, I just want to add one other bit there
1: that a story also leaves room for multiple perspectives and multiple views and debate True. to occur. And that's a really no, big <laughs> that's a really big concept for me because like I'm writing a nonfiction book now and I am teaching a certain principle and I'm giving advice and I'm advocating a certain path. But when I write a novel, I can have different characters who have different paths debating and fighting amongst themselves and not everybody has to come away from the book saying yes I like David's perspectives on, on this or I don't you can actually identify with different characters in different paths So, on the mm-hmm. cash machine we have the main characters on a very specific financial path and but there are other very intelligent very competent characters who are in very different paths and they've got different reasons for choosing their paths so part of what I like about a novel, is not saying, okay, here's the way to do it. Do it the Dave Mason way. Yeah, it's, There can be four different characters with four different concepts. And when you read it, you can really debate them. It, well, which of these make the most sense to me? Or maybe it's some hybrid between them.
0: So that's so important. And I think it's the perfect bridge to really what I'd like to touch on last. Because if I heard you correctly, the, one of the powers of a story is that it's broad enough that everyone can find their path within it, find their place. And it's the type of education which is really oriented towards self-exploration and not just putting people in the mold where I deem that they'll be most successful. So in that sense, um, what I'd like to do is is speak a little bit about the relevance of the Age of Prophecy project and, and our desire to sort of write biblical fantasy to, to religious and even just personal life today because we got a big launch coming up in just a little while. Um, it's called the Self-Fulfilling Prophecy Challenge, right? You want to say a little word about it?
1: Absolutely. So I love the Self-Fulfilling Prophecy Challenge concept because really, again, when we get to prophecy, it's not something that kind of God hits you with. It's not like, hey, that guy, I'm going to be I want him to be messenger for me. Let me hit him with a prophecy and tell him to go do X, Y, Z. Force download. Exactly. It's it's something that a person works on themselves for, and prophecy is something you get after doing training. It's very much. We should a- be
0: clear that the two go together. Like even you know, even the greatest of those that train themselves, as the Rambam says very clearly, there's a process of training and self awareness, and then there's a gift. It's just that those who are are able to receive the gift get offered. It's not that if one does the training that there's any guarantee that it will be offered.
1: Exactly. And by the way, the opposite is also true. There have been some occurrences in the biblical narrative where somebody who is not trained did get the gift.
0: And it rarely goes well.
1: It rarely goes well. (laughs) It is not something you even want to get. If God decides that you need to receive a prophecy and you have not done the training, you know, the scary music in the background your future is not looking so good <laughs>
0: dun, 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 dun. i'll get ben to put it into there okay so but so let's talk a little bit about what this um self-fulfilling prophecy challenge might actually be practically speaking what's there
1: so for us when we sat down and we say okay how do we teach this how do we teach these paths of like what the prophets did and really we started looking at our own lives we started looking at some of our own personal experiences where we engaged in in practices that had some similarities to what people might have done when they got into the, went into the desert and studied under a master and tried to work on themselves
0: in the prophetic journey. aspects of discipline, aspects of self awareness, aspects of um, expansion of consciousness.
1: Exactly. And so we said, okay, let's use what we've, let's bring the best things that we've discovered in our own lives on these journeys of self-awareness, of trying to expand our own consciousness that we've gone through. So one example for me that was actually connected to the, the start of this, this series, though I didn't realize it at the time, was my business was falling apart, having a really difficult time. And as I pointed out, I made a bunch of really poor financial choices early on. And I'd heard this idea that if you go to the the Kotel the Western Wall 40 days in a row and pray for one thing that you'll get an answer and I said, you know, what have I got to lose everything else? I've thought about like has not been has not been working Let me go and let me let me pray that I get this I get this response and I so I went to the Kotel daily for this 40-day period and Unfortunately, I hadn't read the fine print on the promise before I started going (laughs) because I actually did get an answer, but it was not the answer I was looking for.
0: Oh, so true.
1: The answer I was looking for was, it's okay, Dave.
0: Here's a bunch of cash. You're going to be fine. You continue
1: running things exactly as you are, and I'm going to make it all magically work out for you. Right. The answer I got was, what are you here praying to me for? You know what you have to do. You just don't want to do it. You've got to fire people. You've got to close your office. You've got to shut down things that are not profitable. You've got to tighten your belt. You've got to stop looking at your business as a way of giving charity to the world. And as in turn, it's not a nonprofit. You need to actually make some hard decisions and only spend money that you have coming in, not money that you hope I will magically give you. And you need to do things. And it's going to be embarrassing. And it's going to be hard. This
0: is God, as father.
1: (laughs) And you need to do it anyway. And... That was a difficult understanding to come to, but it came to while I was doing these 40 days. And I didn't ever connect it to my 40 days at the coattail until a long time later. But it was also during those 40 days that I came up with this concept of writing the Age of Prophecy series, that I had that whole understanding as, hey, why isn't there a book about the prophets that is written like a Harry Potter type book that can really people can throw themselves into and learn about this incredible world about prophecy. And so it was really I did get that second answer. I did get that yes, here is something that can be a vehicle of blessing for you as well. So they both came from that 40-day process of seeking.
0: So this is an example of what we're really trying to give through the the self-fulfilling prophecy challenge. It's a set of practices together with guiding questions and some sources to learn, right, that will allow you to take the first steps, as it were, down the path of the prophets, if not the path of prophecy. We're not making any money-back guarantees about receiving divine revelation. But what I would say is a commitment that I believe that both of us would stand firmly behind is that anyone who engages with serious intent in the types of practices we're offering will find that they are a different person to some degree when they're finished. You think that's a fair statement?
1: Yes, and for that, we will give them money back, There, There he so, Well, yeah,
0: you can go on there. And and, and if people want to access it, it's going to come together with some uh, sort of higher-end content, which I will leave unrevealed for now. You have to go to the website and, and click to find out. People want to access it. Where should they go? They should
1: go to com, And com. they can download a free copy, by the way, of the lamp of darkness of the first book of the age of prophecy. And they can also learn about the self-fulfilling prophecy challenge.
0: And if folks actually wanted to get the other books you mentioned, where should they go for those?
1: They can go to Dave and you can find out about all of my books on that website.
0: So we're making a clear call folks. If you're interested in accessing wisdom, of the prophets, the type of transformative Torah that I hope you've tasted here on The Jewish Story, but in a more focused and practical fashion that comes out of the type of project that Dave and I have been working on, go to theageofprophecy.com. You'll see the link for the Self-Fulfilling Prophecy Challenge. We're looking to build momentum, and if you want to see real change in your life, I highly recommend that this is the place to go. So Dave, I want to thank you for taking time to have a little chat with me on the record as opposed to our usual off the record discussions um, I also want to thank as long as I'm at it all the folks that give their hard earned money make this show happen keep it free widely available I want to call on you to join them right now it is time to put your money where your ears are people go to jewishstory.co there's a button in the upper right hand corner that says be a patron you can click on that to give a little bit of per podcast support or be in touch rovmikefoyer at gmail.com you can find me on Facebook Rob Mike Foyer. happy to share with you the details of how you can dedicate a show I'm also happy to hear your feedback thoughts on where we're headed for season six as you know by now i'm never quite sure where things are headed in this story i want to thank the land of israel network that's thelandofisrael.com. they're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of judea i want to thank the pardes institute pards.org.il for throwing the doors of the Beit midrash open as wide as possible And i want to thank you for listening i'm rav mike foyer and this is the jewish story